we would rather address the imbalance issue. You can address the imbalance issue through a number of technology, both here in the UK and also in the US, including storage, including energy storage solutions, including ways of perhaps using transition fuels like natural gas to provide the firming electricity you need on the grid, but also capturing the exhaust from the natural gas through CO2 carbon capture and perhaps reusing it in another product because you know it goes into coke, for example, it goes into your carbonated drinks and so forth. So, so creating, looking at it in a more unique way will create a greater impact than just saying, you know what, I'm just going to invest in your power generation. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 58 of the program coming at you right now. And we venture across the pond for this episode as we welcome Mr. Richard Lum, Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer from Victory Hill Capital Advisors, LLP, a private equity and infrastructure investment firm over in London. And they specialize in, as you might imagine, sustainable investments across the globe. And we're very excited about what he has to talk about is regarding from a global view of sustainability and where the UK plays into it, their role in the energy transition, as well as the role the US is playing globally, and much more. But before we get into all that, here is our founder and CEO, Mike Niemer, telling you what we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Mike Niemer here, President and CEO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both PPAs and VPPAs. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process, whether you are a buyer or a seller of wind, solar, or battery storage, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Additionally, we help customers with microgrid or battery storage development, renewable natural gas by turning waste energy, LED lighting and HVAC efficiency upgrades, unbundled RECs, and provide energy advisory services to our customers. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. Don't forget to check out our website, eRenew.net. Of course, you can always connect with us over at LinkedIn and connect with Mike and myself on LinkedIn as well. So let's jump out to the program right now. Once again, Richard Lum, Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer from Victory Hill over in London. And in this episode, listen, we cover a lot of ground here, talking a little bit about, again, the the UK's approach to the energy transition, how the US is assisting with technology advancement across the globe, and Mr. Richard Lum's thoughts on sustainability and why it means more than just clean energy. Great lesson, lots of good information here. Mr. Lum, very fascinating individual. So please, without further ado, welcome to the program, Mr. Richard Lum. What was it like for you to cross over from oil and gas and electricity to the sustainable side? No, that's a very good question, and it's a very pertinent question, I think, that a lot of us have had to deal with. Yeah, no, of course, I've spent um, the greater part of 27 years financing, you know, energy projects across the value chain, and in particular, you know, starting off with uh, conventional energy projects, and, you know, upstream and midstream uh, oil and gas operations and, uh, and, and power, conventional, and, and then moving into renewables. 
I think uh, the interesting aspect of this is all of us who come from the wide spectrum of energy backgrounds have a role to play in furthering the sustainable energy cause. We have skill sets that we've developed you know, over this period of time in terms of looking at risk and opportunities inherent in energy projects, whether it's conventional or so forth, that we can bring in to help further, you know, to help develop um, the sustainable energy uh, space. And I guess one pretty good example of that is to understand really energy markets and what makes energy markets from a supply demand perspective work. And having that fundamental understanding really, you know, would help um, a lot of sustainable energy projects, uh, you know, in in this day and age that are moving away from subsidy-based regimes into market-based fundamentals. So understanding those from a conventional perspective helps. What's kind of that relationship between traditional oil and and renewable in your part of the world across the pond? I think we've all been aware of the role that uh, big oil has had to play, or big energy as it's called now, um, um, has had to play in the energy transition. They clearly have a key role, enabling role to play within the transition. And um, and I think and this is not a reflection or, or a judgment call on, on our friends across the pond, but um, a lot of the European energy majors had already picked up on the, you know, on the idea of what is the cost of doing business in conventional energy? What is the cost of carbon? much earlier they adopted this and priced it into their activities much earlier you know certainly since 2015 and the paris agreement then they signed up you know the likes of uh, you know uh, the dutch oil major anglo dutch oil major and and, and so forth the total and bp etc they they all signed up to the idea of pricing carbon because they realized that you know we were now in an intractable pathway towards energy transition so so they've been pretty much realigning their strategic objectives, you know, from that period onwards. And we've noticed that in the way they've interacted with, you know, the, the financing space as well. It's just ramped up over the last, certainly the last 18 months into an epoch-changing you know, <laughs> uh, event for them and their shareholders. Uh, but they've, they've always been on the periphery of it. Uh, and, and we need them on site. It's going to be very difficult to try to reimagine and change the energy systems that we operate in right now. What's the rest of the globe's view on how U.S. is pursuing renewable energy? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I can't speak to, you know, the wider community. I can only speak from, from my own experience and, you know, certainly my perception. Clearly, the U.S. has been setting the agenda in terms of energy consumption, as has China, uh, you know, for, for, for many, many years on the conventional side of things. But I think what we're seeing now as we move into the transition is actually the role that the U.S. has to play, particularly at local level only at federal level. There's been a lot of focus on federal level with the change of administration, but we see at the local level already a lot of engagement in the transition, uh, in particular at state level. And of course, you know, in states such as Texas, you know, you've had certainly the largest penetration of renewable technologies such as, you know, wind power for many years already. I mean, it came out of the idea of uh, providing some type of, you know, energy, you know, confidence in having your own domestic source of energy at the point in time when geopolitical events uh, dictated it. But ultimately, it has resulted in real sustained, uh, you know, support for that transition. I think from our perspective, uh, you know, at Victory Hill and, you know, uh, my own observations, the U.S. is a picture of a developed energy system that we've seen that requires more work involved to, for it to transition. We're talking about grids and, and the level of investment required, say, for, to, to upgrade grids, you know, on a, on a statewide and, and federal level as well. That requires a lot of investment. And I don't necessarily think a wholesale overturning of the grid system is the right way to go. So therefore, the U.S. presents 
good opportunities for people who want to invest in distributed energy schemes. And we're seeing distributed energy schemes where where the, the, the source of energy supply is co-located with um, load centers, where the demand is, um, as a neat way of trying to address the challenges you have in, in upgrading grids. And, and, and the U.S. is a very good example of that. From what you've seen in, in projects you've been a part of across the globe, where are we at technology to get this thing closer and, and make this thing happen sooner rather than later? I think the U.S. is still a key actor and promoter of renewable energy globally. We see this through, you know, the, the traditional OEM businesses that sub turbines, wind turbines, etc., and 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 signs for CHPs uh, globally. Um, but we're also starting to see and the U.S. also takes a leadership role in terms of storage technology, in particular battery storage technology. That's where we see you guys having sort of large-scale battery storage technology. Um, but also we're starting to see now um, other types of technologies come to the fore and uh, with, with U.S. sponsorship, um, you know, including other types of storage. And we're talking about gravity-based storage technology. We're talking about liquefied air storage technology uh, that comes to the fore, where they're set basically providing a solution for longer duration periods than batteries currently provide. So we're talking about medium and low duration storage, which is really important in terms of firming the grids of the future. Now, clearly, China took on the advantage role in terms of cheapening the cost of production uh, for, for the likes of, you know, um, uh, solar panels. And it's become very commoditized in that space and whatnot. I think the key to unlocking um, a sustainable energy in the future is not only the commoditization of pieces of kit, but is also the, the, the intellectual property that comes with putting solutions together for microgrids, for distributed energy schemes and so forth. And I think that's where probably the U.S. has a, has, has a key advantage as well. Yeah, look, I mean, so so Victory Hill's an, an interesting example of what not to do during the uh, global pandemic. I mean, basically, you're originated in a in a, a large Japanese bank. Four other five founding partners, including myself, uh, originated from, and we worked together internally as a special situations group addressing the concerns of our integrated energy clients and providing capital and advice. We spun out really in Q2 last year. It took us, um, you know, a couple of years to try to, given that we had senior leadership roles, to try to negotiate an exit on, a, on good terms, and we did. Um, we were very much driven by the fact that we wanted to connect with middle market developers of sustainable energy projects globally uh, more meaningfully than we could do within a large industrial organization. We felt that um, managing, uh, uh, you know, independently managing a fund was the best way for us to achieve that. So, so we spun out in Q2 last year, a, a group of five managing partners. We all turned to our our better halves and said, you know what, there is a global pandemic, but I'm actually going to leave my job now uh, because I believe in sustainable energy. You know, that, that clearly has some type of resonance in some sectors of, uh, of, of, of society. But, you know, in the home, it's a, it's a little bit more of a complicated issue. But to know everybody was incredibly supportive. People believed in the vision. And we haven't looked back since, essentially, you know, um, since, well, pretty much just over a year. What's been the biggest surprise since you guys all partnered together for Victory Hill? What's been the biggest challenge? biggest surprise that we had was the reception um, that we got from, from, from investors as we raised our first um, first fund, which is a public listed fund it's called Beach Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, PLC. It's listed on the, on the London main board of the London Stock Exchange, really undergoing uh, you know, that investor outreach and understanding uh, the appetite that investors have for sustainable energy and sustainable projects in, in, in general, that was pretty phenomenal. Uh, you, know, ha- you know, given that we had all transitioned from, you know, other uh, parts of the you know, value chain, including, you know, um, conventional energy, seeing um, the, the real 
um, appetite that investors have for this sector was, was, was really quite pleasing. I would also say that um, you know, uh, one of the challenges was also related to the investor outreach as well, which is to do with the idea that investors tend to have cultured themselves to have a very simplistic view of what sustainable energy means. And ultimately, for, to the untutored mind, sustainable energy may mean just renewable energy. We believe renewable energy is too small a canvas to play in. The whole sustainability issue is bigger than just renewable energy. It needs a bigger canvas. And really, the canvas we chose um, um, as our anchor is the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which couples both the idea of addressing climate change, which clearly is to do with renewable energy, with other important factors for the global society, including access to reliable and affordable clean energy, um, looking at um, liberalization of energy markets to create jobs and better industries for you know, communities, etc. These other factors are not just related to renewable energy. So that's what we felt. We had to educate um, our audience you know, to, 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 to access capital by saying, hey, it's not only a renewable energy story, it is a sustainable energy story, and that's much bigger. Since you see the picture all around the globe and we hear the word energy transition all the time, is that those two words, energy transition, have a different meaning in different countries? Is there relatively the same meaning all across the world? That's another interesting question. I think energy transition may mean something different in Asia than it would do in a developing country or a developing economy, should I say. Um, like the US or the or Western Europe. I think I think Western Europe in particular, when we talk about energy transition just more broadly, people think of it as just purely the end goal, which is uh, renewable power generation. And they think that's what the energy transition means. I think it has a wider meaning and a wider context in still developing economies where they have to meet, you know, the the, the challenges of providing you know, access to reliable energy to, to their populace, as well as meeting climate change objectives as well. So that's really what the true meaning of transition is. We want to transition from where we are now to the end goal. And that's much more meaningful to developing economies than to develop ones, essentially. I, I'm not so sure if I you know, uh, made that point uh, uh, clear, but that, that's my perception, certainly. A lot of people throw that word around, but I truly feel like they don't understand the meaning that they're transitioning from the old oil and gas ways to the new sustainability ways. I think there's so much in between there. I don't think everybody views it quite the same way. No, absolutely. And I think transition also implies that there is a process involved that you can't simply switch off the tap and expect to continue as we do now with 90% of what makes up our houses. You know, ultimately, you still need to have all these products around the house, whatever, but you need to manufacture it in a much more sustainable way, in a decarbonized way. So that, that, that act of decarbonization is implicit with energy transition. It's not simply just about flicking the switch and thinking, everything is now just um, renewable full stop. Well then, you know, how do we get access to what you know, makes you know, this society tick at the moment? It is, a, it is a period of transition and decarbonization in my opinion. I think fundamentally, as we're doing an outreach um, to investors, what we're saying is how much of a sustainability impact can you make if you participate in a highly saturated market for renewable energy, for example? Um, I'll give you one good example. You know, in the UK, there is a lot of capital that has been spent on new renewable power generation over the last two decades or so, particularly in terms of offshore wind in, 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 in that technology. There's billions and multi-billions of pounds that have been dedicated to that. But in our opinion, you know, putting on another two gigawatts of offshore wind 
what impact is that making in terms of global sustainable energy objectives? I would argue very little, because not only are you not addressing re um, sustainable and renewable energy uh, you know, impacts elsewhere in the world where it's needed, you're actually putting on more instability in the UK energy system by just concentrating on renewable power. Clearly, you need to have renewable power in the future, but you also need to balance the grid. And at this point in time, balancing the grid means if the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine as bright, there is still some dependable source of power to ensure that people get supplied. Because we can't live our lives when, you know, if, if the wind yields are low and yet at the same time you're having a, a cold snap, we can't get access to, 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 to electricity. That's absurd. That is anti-sustainable in our opinion. So our way of, um, you know, of, of approaching the subject is not to join the queue to, um, to invest another two gigawatts of offshore wind. What impact does that make? We would rather address the imbalance issue. And you can address the imbalance issue through a number of technology, both here in the UK and also in the US, including storage, including energy storage um, solutions, including ways of perhaps using transition fuels like natural gas to provide the firming electricity you need on the grid, but also capturing the exhaust from the natural gas through CO2 carbon capture and perhaps reusing it in another product because, you know, it goes into coke, for example, it goes into your carbonated drinks and so forth. So, so creating, looking at it in a more unique way will create a greater impact than just saying, you know what, I'm just going to invest in your power generation. When you discussed the offshore projects in the UK, in the United States, you know, we have all kinds of subsidies to help that developer be able to afford to do that. Do they have subsidies in uh, those other countries and in the UK specifically for the offshore projects? Yeah, so it started off as a series of great subsidies that have now moved into what, what, what we would consider more classically as financial hedges that have been offered by the government. So uh, contracts for differences. So, you know, in the latest rounds of wind auctions, you have offshore, offshore UK, the successful tender for that um, concession would win a CFD for a particular, you know, particular capacity. So in the UK context, they are still supported by a form of government support, essentially. And that's evolved from straight up subsidies into a, a guarantee of a minimum return through contracts for difference, which is a kind of like a hedging product, essentially, that the successful bidder for an offshore wind concession would actually win uh, over the period of their investment. So they are assured a minimum level of return for that. That also allows those projects to be bankable. And, uh, and given that these projects are really, really large, I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know a, a two gigawatt offshore wind farm, you know, closing out at maybe 10 billion sterling. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, these types of developers want to get, you know, leverage and this allows them to get leverage. So yes, there is, there is government support still. Where do you stand on hydrogen? There has been a fair amount of you know, discussion around hydrogen. It's, it's very, very topical. A lot of people are looking towards it. We know a lot of investors have asked um, you know, around, you know, what's next for hydrogen. It's clearly been um, touted by, you know, certainly the media and sections of governments, et cetera, as some type of panacea for, you know, for our energy system, you know, uh, moving forward. I personally think hydrogen is a very good idea. It draws on conventional principles of combustion technology that we know from conventional energy, but it uses a, a, a feedstock that is, you know, essentially, you know, can be essentially completely renewable. You know, you can start off by actually recycling more conventional feedstocks, more conventional oil and gas products, whatever it is, into uh, hydrogen, um, which is probably the less preferred route, but ultimately you can create hydrogen from, for example, air. 
coming in. So I think hydrogen needs to be invested in. I think the key piece of hydrogen, as we see it in the UK context, is what is the end market for hydrogen? Who's using the hydrogen and how is that market being supported? And in the UK context, really, there's two primary uses of hydrogen that you can identify with that has been touted. One of them is to do with power generation, ultimately, and spiking the natural gas grid with hydrogen, replacing natural gas grid with hydrogen as one factor. The other factor is actually to use it in transport as a transportation fuel. And I think in order to make those types of projects investable, really, the government needs to step up to provide a clear direction and clear support for the evolution of the transportation sector using hydrogen and the industrial sector using hydrogen. If you don't have that, then you're really going to be stuck with very dislocated hydrogen using industries in industrial clusters and the majority of society not benefiting from it. It does require government leadership. Where is that technology? Clearly, many developers who are touting a particular technology, uh, you know, solution to it don't think it's matured enough for, for widespread investment. I think there will be key clusters of investment being led by large industrial groups uh, in order to integrate into their existing um, operations, but I don't think it's there yet in terms of widespread investment. We have our eye on it, um, you know, specifically to see that there is opportunity for us to invest, but it's, I don't think it's there or there yet. So from a consumer level, you're thinking probably at least five to, we're at least five to 10, maybe 15 years away from it being a part of a, the mainstream consumer level product. I would say that's probably a reasonable assumption to make. How much is renewable as far, whether it's wind, solar, what's the status right now in, in the UK as far as, I know you already talked about offshore wind, what's the rest of it look like? Broadly speaking, renewable technology offers around about 25, 30% of the energy mix in the UK right now, which is pretty significant. Absolutely. Consider. Um, you know, the, you know, the total energy mix. And I think what raises as well is the prospect of, you know, greater intermittency being a factor on the grid. We've seen that actually. We've seen that in real real, real time. I think it was uh, in, in December going into January, we had some real cold snaps, but, the, um, you know, but the, the, the wind yields were relatively low. So, uh, so, so the national grid, the operator here in the UK had to lock uh, more dependable, unfortunately, more pollutive sources of uh, dependable power like coal-fired generators at a premium. And, and we thought that's just, that's just, you know, it's the most unsustainable thing you, you can think of. You're, you're investing in renewable generation, but you still have to call on coal. We shouldn't have to do that. And I think, I think the key to unlocking that within the UK context is really the greater, um, I, I guess, evolution of storage technology. And I'm not only talking about battery storage, because battery storage technology is being uh, more widely deployed in the UK context. What we what we need to get is uh, storage technology that addresses the longer periods of time, the medium and long duration storage. And in that way, then you can start firming up what we call seasons, meaning events beyond just one day. So it could be, uh, you know, low wind yields over a week, a month, whatever it is, you can firm it through longer duration storage. And I think that would be the game changer from our perspective. Is nuclear the uh, bugaboo word in the UK as it is here in the United States? Yeah, let me, I, mean, I have to say, you know, over the last 12 months, you know, we, we, you know the, the, the UK government especially has been dithering about, you know, what they do and whether they invest in the next generation of nuclear capacity. Clearly, there is a lobby that sees nuclear as the, 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 the correct complement for a sustainable energy system. Personally, I don't think so, because, you know, whilst I think that power generation from nuclear is clearly not, you know, carbon intensive, I think the means for which you get the feedstock which is the uranium, et cetera, is possibly not as sustainable as other, other sources. The UK government obviously acknowledges that. 
and they have a fleet of nuclear power stations that are that are becoming leeching over the next five ten years. The issue is whether they invest in like what they consider as, as a, a micro nuclear power plants, as it were, you know, something a bit more rinky dinky. But you know, these these types of uh, facilities take a long time to come to fruition. You know, from from the idea itself onwards. You know, and there's a lot of stuff in terms of project commissioning of these types of um, systems. So, so I think there's a bit of mark whether or not they will, you know, renew that nuclear fleet. It's no secret that we want to grow the portfolio. We want to grow, you know, our assets and the management. We think that we have proven track record within this 18 months of actually raising capital and going on to deploy that capital. So we're going to be focused for the rest of this year of, you know, uh, fully committing the capital that we've raised and perhaps going to look at raising more capital as well. We want to grow the overall book. We think there is space for this because there is a lot of demand for this type of capital in the international, you know, sustainable energy space. So that's our mission. Our mission is to grow the capital, deploy more, support more developers looking to develop these types of sustainable energy projects. And perhaps, you know, in the medium term, look at supporting them at an earlier stage, prior to ready-to-build stage, which is where we come in, generally speaking, at this point in time, looking at it perhaps in the development stage, supporting developers during development stage in another strategy, perhaps. That's that's really what's on our agenda. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Richard Lum. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, as always, we ask if you listen to us on Apple iTunes, Give us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than before you stop by. Thank you so much to Mr. Mike Niemer and the entire eRenewable team. This has been the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Iron Serenity. Thank mm-hmm. you.